Open your Bibles with me to Acts 6 and Hebrews 11. Acts chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 11. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts, and we're calling this the beginning of our story. And there have been so many firsts that we have looked at, and today we're going to begin looking at the first martyr in the early church. His name was Stephen. And last week, in the last several weeks, last two weeks, we looked at the organization of the church, how the the, the blessing of multiplication brought the problem of people and how God divided the church. He gave the, the apostles had their job and the deacons had their job and all of it needed to be spirit-filled and full of wisdom. And the one needed to serve the word and the other needed to serve tables. And there was a need for both and there's still that need today. So what, we're going to start in verse 8 and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. So let's look at this. And Stephen, full of faith and power. Oh, by the way, we are ordering the new Bibles for the pews. They are large print because the Bibles that are in the pews now are way too tiny. Um, But they're expensive. They're about $13 each. So if you would like to help with that, some of you, I know the the Epic class a couple of years ago raised money for this. We still have that money. That's about $800. But this is going to be about $2,500 to get these Bibles, so if you'd like to help with that, along with all the other offerings we're taking at Christmas time, uh, feel free to do that. But if you don't have a Bible with you, look in the, under the chair in front of you. There is a Bible there with very small print, and uh, you're going to want to follow along. So let's, again, verse 8, chapter 6. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then... There arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, and the elders and the scribes came upon them and caught him, came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Lord, please help us as we look at this passage in this amazing servant of yours. Father, I pray that you will help us today to understand this. In Jesus' name, amen. So here are the things that we need to look at in this passage. There are people and there are places and there are problems that pop up in this section that really teach us a lot Stephen is such a significant figure. He is a transitional figure. You know that the book of Acts is a transitional book. It's a transition from the Jewish gospels to the church epistles. It's a transition from the law to grace. It's a transition from Peter, the apostle to the Jews, to Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And Stephen is the bridge from Peter to Paul. 
So really a significant character that really did not have very long to serve. He is the first of the Christian martyrs. Um, Stephen's ministry, interesting, interestingly enough, was to Jews who are not from Jerusalem, proselytes, and other people. So his was to Jews mainly from Gentile lands. Peter ministered in Jerusalem. Paul ministered throughout the Roman Empire. Stephen's ministry was the catalyst that caused the church to spread throughout the world. Look at Acts chapter 8. Verse 1. This is speaking of the death of Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul, who became Paul. And Saul was consenting unto his death. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which is at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So the apostles stayed in Jerusalem, but but the Christians went all over the region because of the death of Stephen. So Stephen is the catalyst that is used. It's interesting to me. I wonder if the first time Paul actually heard about the gospel was from Stephen. Because if you look at Acts chapter 6 again, look at verse 9, then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians. That's Cyrenians. So Tarsus, and he's Saul of Tarsus, is in this city called, this region called the Cyrenians, where the Cyrenians live. So this was probably Paul's synagogue. This might be where Paul heard the gospel for the first time. And we know that he was there because look at Acts chapter 7. And look at verse 58. Let's let's try verse 57. Acts chapter 7 and verse 57. Then they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord. This is what they're doing to Stephen. And cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. So this, he's witnessing all of this. It's amazing. And go back to Acts chapter 6. And look at what he witnessed. Verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So it, it's, it's distinctly possible that God used, not only was Stephen the bridge from Peter to Paul, but God used Stephen to first bring the gospel to Paul. He's an amazingly significant character. Um, this, this death that he died and the way he died, I think it left a significant impression. On Paul, Because when Paul gives his testimony, he always talks about how he martyred the saints, how he persecuted the church of God. And that began with him being there with the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr. Um, so we have people and we have places and we have problems. Let's look at this first person that's mentioned. Let's look at Stephen. 
verse 8 again, and Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So what does it mean to be filled with faith? Well, we know that Ephesians 5.18 says, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be what? Filled with the Spirit. There's like six of you awake right now. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. So what does that mean? If you're drunk with wine, you're controlled by the wine. If you're full of the Spirit, you're controlled by the Spirit. If you're full of faith, you are controlled by faith. Well, what does that mean? Keep your place here in Acts 6. Go to Hebrews 11. Now, don't unplug when we read familiar passages. If you've been saved for any length of time, this is a familiar passage. Look at Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. What is faith? Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Look at verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We know that the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And the Bible says that our salvation, if it's of faith, then it's not of works. It's faith is the basis of our salvation, but it's to be more than the basis of our salvation. It needs to be the center of our life. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. We are not only saved by faith, we are to live by faith. And Stephen was full of faith. That is, his entire life was based on faith. So much faith that in the face of those who had killed Jesus, he was as bold as any prophet of the Old Testament ever was. He was full of faith. He was controlled by faith. You see, many of us, we are, we are fully settled on faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection. How many of you, that's you? You are fully settled on that. And you know that's enough for your salvation. But are you so full of faith and controlled by it that you can live a joyful life? See, we have faith for our eternal destiny. Do we have faith for the next moment? The, the, this, this deacon, Stephen, who was not only a deacon, but clearly he had been with the apostles because he works with apostolic power, performing apostolic gifts. And there are only, listen, here, here are the number of people that did that. You ready? Stephen? Philip? Barnabas. That's it. We have this idea that this early church was full of miracles. Well, it was full of apostles. And then three other men who were either assistants to an apostle like Barnabas or these deacons who were sent out, who preached. As a matter of fact, the Bible identifies Philip as one of the seven, but it also calls him the evangelist. Philip the evangelist. Isn't that cool? 
And so what God does is he works through these guys. How did he do that? Because they were full of faith and apostolic power. It's an amazing thing. And they had the faith not only to believe in the Messiah, to believe in the resurrection, to believe in his second coming. They believed in all of that. And we'll see in the text, they believed the teachings of Jesus. They believed that they didn't need the law anymore. They believed the temple was going to be destroyed. That's the accusation that's made against Stephen when he's brought before the council. And so he was full of faith, which means he is controlled by faith. So here's the question for you. Sometimes when we do doctrinal preaching, if we're not careful, we forget to make the application. What does this doctrine mean to me? Well, the simple fact is that God has given us his spirit and he's given us the mechanism to access that power of the Spirit, and that mechanism is faith. Do you believe him? Do you believe God for your situation right now? Are you full of faith? That's the description that God gave of Stephen. What an amazing man of God Stephen was. So look at verse 8 again, Acts 6. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Verse 9. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of... I'm sorry, I said Cyrenians. Cilicia. Cilicia is where Saul of Tarsus. Tarsus is in Cilicia. So if you made a note in your Bible, you'll have to buy a new Bible. Okay. And of Asia disputing with Stephen. And look what they're doing. They're disputing with Stephen. And this is not the riotous arguing like we see later in chapter 7. They're debating. So like when Saul in Acts chapter 17 went to Thessalonica. He went to the synagogue of the Jews as his manner was. And he reasoned with them out of the scriptures. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and, and uh, died and risen from the dead. That's what he preached from the scriptures for them. He reasoned with them. That's the idea of this passage right here. He, that he's in the synagogue reasoning with these people, but they don't want to be reasoned with. So they just argue. Have you ever experienced that? You're saying something, and, and it doesn't matter what you say. Somebody's just going to argue with you about it. Right? That's what's happening here. Why? Because they had their religion and they were not interested in Christ. But again, notice what it says in verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. I love it that verse 10 demonstrates that the people had done what the apostles told them to. Look at verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. So Stephen is full of the Holy Ghost, and he's full of wisdom. Isn't that cool? And they can't resist that. I'm going to have more to say about that in a minute. But they are not able to resist that. Is it too warm in here? I'm seeing a lot of people falling asleep right now. Ty, will you check that for me? Um, and if you're ever upset that it's cool in here, stay awake. <laughs> that'll help us and so what's happening here is Stephen is a demonstration 
that not only did God through the Holy Spirit give divine order for the early church, divine organization, but he gave the people divine wisdom to pick the right men to do the job. That's a wonderful thing. How many of you wish God would give America the right wisdom to to pick the right people for the job? That's what supreme prayer is all about. How many of you have been praying with us at 7 o'clock on Saturdays? How many of you have been doing that? Let me recommend, praise God. I'm so thankful that you all have been doing that. The rest of you, what we have to do, we forget every week. Laura has an alarm on her phone that goes off. Oh, we need to pray. We got to pray. And so we stop whatever we're doing and we pray. I really recommend that you do that. Does our country need prayer? Do our leaders need prayer? I'm very thankful for Brad Wells and Grace Way Baptist Church there on Capitol Hill. And they're at the Supreme Court every Saturday, 52 weeks a year. Doesn't matter what holiday it is. Doesn't matter what the weather is. They're there on the steps of Supreme Court praying every week. Well, we can do that in our homes or wherever we are. Amen. We can participate in that. And what God did was God gave the people his spirit to choose the right men for the job. And he clearly did. But I want you to notice a couple of things. The people that are involved here, Stephen, full of grace. I'm sorry, full of faith, full of power, full of wisdom. And look at what his message is. Now, we're, gonna, we're not actually going into his message, but I want to make a couple of references this morning. Look at verse 10 of chapter 7. This is the sermon that Stephen preaches. So talking about Joseph, and delivered him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So Joseph was full of wisdom. Verse 22 of chapter 7. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. So Stephen, who is full of wisdom, and that is what the requirement was for service, in his sermon, he even speaks on wisdom. And God, wanting to emphasize that for us in Stephen's life, that's the last time the word wisdom is used in the book of Acts. In the ministry of Stephen. He is a representative in the New Testament, in the early church, of being full of faith and having wisdom. And you know what's interesting? Please don't miss this. Being full of faith, having apostolic power, being full of wisdom, irresistible, irrefutable wisdom, he was still killed. See, we have this idea that if only I had more faith, this wouldn't happen. If only I had the right words, maybe I could have stopped this from happening. There's something you need to understand. Look at what happens in verse 10. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men. So what? it's a crime to suborn perjury. What is suborning perjury? It's convincing someone to lie under oath. When you suborn something, you come under their power. And so these, these leaders, these people from this synagogue, this synagogue, they caused others to come under their power. All right? So, 
Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. Here's what happens. Man, I have seen this and we have all seen it. When you confront a pagan with truth, often they do not try to argue they respond in rage. Look at anyone who sets up a pro-life display on a college campus and watch these these demon-possessed young people walk by and just start screaming at them. How do you know they're demon-possessed? I don't. They just look like they are. Why? Because they're indoctrinated with murder, with hatred, for children. You try to debate someone and show them that, that, that a man is a man and a woman is a woman. That's easy to demonstrate. And so they don't try to argue with you. They try to shut you down. And that's exactly what happened to Stephen. They couldn't resist his speech. I want you to notice verse 10 again. It is such a powerful statement. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. I had written in my old Bible, I saw it this morning, and I wrote it in my new one when I saw it, a prayer. Lord, let me speak like this. Lord, let me present the truth in such a way that they cannot resist it. Where are the disputers of this world, the Bible says? Go ahead, try to argue with this. This is the truth. You must accept it. That's what the preaching of the word is supposed to be. Amen? That's what our faith is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be throwing out a bunch of options and you choose which one you want. It's supposed to be, this is the truth. This is what you need. This is the way that we are supposed to live. And you can only live that way if you're full of faith in what you're saying. See, here's why preachers give up the truth. They never really believed it in the first place. Why is it that Republicans are so easily uh, swayed in Congress? Because they don't really believe what they've said. The Democrats really believe what they say. They really believe their Satanism. They really believe their demonic, anti-God, anti-family, anti-nature, anti-religious rhetoric. They really believe it. We must be so full of faith in the truth so rock solid and grounded in the truth that they can't argue with us. They may have to kill us. Stephen wasn't afraid. Why? Because he had faith, not only for the future, but faith for the moment. And what did that do? That filled him with power. Now, I'm not saying that if you have faith like Stephen, that you'll do apostolic miracles. But I will say that you will have the power of God for whatever it is that God wants to accomplish through you. I want you to see this from verse 10, that Stephen, like we have seen Peter, what he's doing is he's representing what Jesus taught them. Okay, so let's look at some passages. Look at Luke chapter 20. They were not able to resist 
What weren't they able to resist? The wisdom. They couldn't resist his wisdom. All right? So, we are in Luke chapter 20 and verse 8, talking about Jesus. Or Jesus, verse 8. And Jesus said unto them, Neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. So, Jesus right here begins speaking in parables. He's not going to give them the information, right? And so what does he do? He starts speaking in parables, and then in verse 26, look at what happens. And they could not take hold of his words before the people, and they marveled at his answer and held their peace. So they start asking Jesus Christ questions. Jesus asks them questions back, and they can't answer the questions. So we had a guy from our church who uh, joined the Gideons, and I had gone to a Gideons meeting once, and they had a woman preacher lead in prayer, and across the table from me was someone who didn't believe in the deity of Christ. Next to me was somebody who didn't believe in the Trinity. And so I, I talk, the guy tried to get me to come back, and I, I, I told this the head of the Gideons. Well, I just started asking him some questions, reading the scriptures. So years later, someone from our church joined the Gideons. The guy was attending our church. And the, the Gideon, head of the Gideons, said, uh, where do you go to church? He said, I go to Grace Baptist. And the guy said, oh, I know that pastor. All he does is ask questions and quote scripture. Well, I will ask what you believe, and then I'll tell you what the Bible says about that. And wouldn't you think that that would make a religious person happy? Have you, how many of you have ever had someone say, stop quoting scripture to me? Hold your hands up. Hold them up. Hold them up. I want everybody to see this. Hold them up. Look around. Stop quoting scripture to me. Well, maybe that person's not a Christian. Or they're a saved person that is imbibing non-Christian information. All right? So here's what happens. Look at verse 4 in Luke 20. Look at verse 39. Then certain of the scribes answering said, Master, thou hast well said. And after that, they durst not ask him any question at all. Yeah, they really thought they knew stuff. And I have experienced this, whether it's on the King James Bible or Baptist doctrine or why we do things the way that we do. One of the easiest things at Grace Baptist Church for me as pastor, when someone says, why do you do this? Okay, open your Bible too. Because the things that we really care about, they're from here. As far as what time the service is, that's open for negotiation. This, no negotiation. Amen? Why? Well, this is so good. So he was full of faith. We're to be full of the Spirit. How are we full of the Spirit? Look at Colossians 3.16. I know you know this, but let's look at it anyway. How many of you know where I'm going? Say amen. All right. Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all what? Here's what's fun. I forgot the wisdom was in that verse when I just had you go there. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. When the Bible says in Ephesians 5.18, be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, the result of that is exactly the same result as letting the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then what happens when it dwells in you all richly? In you richly? It's in all wisdom. If you want to be full of wisdom, be full of the Scriptures. And listen, there are things that we can dispute on. All right, there are things even within our local church that some people believe and some people don't believe. And, and that's fine, as long as it's not something that is a declarative statement from the Scriptures. Amen? It's vital that we agree on those things because that's how we confound the world. But you can't stand on something that you don't know. You can't have faith in something that you don't know. That's why the Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto God. Kids, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Okay, you guys let me down. We're going to do that again. You ready? Come on, stand up here. Come on, you guys right here, front row. Come here, come up here. Turn around, look at the crowd. All right, let's say the, say the verse. You guys say it. Study. A workman. Okay, thank you. Ty, let's do a lesson on boldness. <laughs> guys, let me ask you something. How many of you think that's the way Stephen spoke when he stood up in front of the... The council. Be bold. See, we need to study so that we're not ashamed. I don't know about you, but there have been times when I've been in a debate, somebody, I'm trying to represent the Lord well, and somebody asks me a question, and I can't remember where the Bible says that. I can't defend the Bible well. And honestly, in that moment, I was ashamed. How many of you have experienced that shame? And, and I know here we're attacked because that word study, that, that it really means to be diligent. Yeah, it means to be diligent in what? In studying the Bible. And so we, we need to have faith in it, but we can't have faith and boldness if we're not confident in our knowledge of it. Vital that we have this. So not only... Is Stephen demonstrating the power of words that Jesus had? It's also a fulfillment of a promise that Jesus made. All right? So I want you to get Acts 6 and get Luke Luke 12. I know some of you are thinking, I am your father, Luke. I know you were thinking that when I said that right there. Okay, so Luke 12. We're going to get Luke 12 and Acts 6. So let's start in Acts 6. So in verse 9, there arose certain of the synagogue, end of the verse, disputing with Stephen, verse 10, and they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. They couldn't resist it. All right? Um, 
Look at, keep your place there in Acts, of course. Go to Luke 12 and verse 8. Also I say unto you, whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of God also confess before the angels of God. Verse 11. And when they bring you unto the synagogues and unto magistrates and powers, take you no thought how or what thing ye shall answer or what ye shall say. For the Holy Ghost shall teach you in the same hour what ye ought to say. So now this is instruction for the apostles. We're instructed to prepare and know what we're going to say. Here in the early church, God gave them the specific words to say. Look at chapter 21, Luke chapter 21 and verse 12. So Jesus is talking about wars and rumors of wars, the Olivet Discourse, all of that stuff. But look at what it says in verse 12. But before all these... They shall lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and into prisons, being brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. And look at what it says. And it shall turn to you for a testimony. Settle it, therefore, in your hearts, not to meditate before what ye shall answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. That's exactly what God did for Stephen. How cool is that? He's full of faith. He believed God. God gave him the words, and those words were so powerful they couldn't be overcome. Why, why do we not do the same thing? Because the Holy Spirit gave us those same words right here. We have them written down and printed. So now I am to fill my mind with this. I am to let the word of Christ dwell in me richly in all wisdom. And that's how I know how to resist the gainsayers. That's what the Apostle Paul said. And that's how we stop their mouths. This is an amazing direct fulfillment And what's interesting is his accusers don't even try to answer him. Once the disputation has happened, now Stephen, look at chapter 7 and verse 1, then said the high priest are these things so, and he said, men, brethren, and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham. So that's Acts 7 and verse 1. And he just goes straight into a sermon. At the end of the sermon, look at chapter 7, verse 54. When they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed on him with their teeth. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, stood up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. So when he finishes his sermon, they don't try to argue with him. Why? There's nothing left to be said. Because what he has done, and we're going to take the time to go through this over the next few weeks. When you look at what he said, he preached Christ to them out of their law out of their Old Testament, out of their Bibles. He showed them what the Bible said, and they could not resist it. So here's what happens. When falsehood is confronted by truth, falsehood cannot stand. You would think it would bring faith, 
But what it brings is rage. They gnashed on him with their teeth. Rage. You understand that's the world we live in right now, right? And let's go back to what these people did in Acts chapter 6. I'm going to talk about the places next week. But look at verse 11. Then they suborned men, which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Now notice the order there. They care more about Moses than they do about God. Why? Because they care more about their tradition and their religion than they do about God. And look, that continues. Um, Verse 12. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council. And look at verse 13. And set up false witnesses, which said... So just like they did to Jesus and just like they did to Paul, just like they're doing to President Trump. Now, is President Trump Stephen or Jesus? No, no. But he was saying some things that are true, and the Republicans and Democrats can't have that. Pastor, do you have to get political? Absolutely. Because you're going to see that Satan's playbook is still the same. So look at what they say. Verse 13, and set up false witnesses, which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. So again, they cared more about the building than they did about the law. The temple was more important to them than the law. Do you see the order of it? And remember, in Greek, the way that Greek is written, the the emphasis is based on word order. The way that the Bible is written, and your King James Bible translates it perfectly. It's exactly the order of it. And these men are traditionalists. They're not biblicists. That's what happens. Look at what it says in verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. So I want you to notice a couple of things. And this is exactly what evil people do. What they're saying about him, are, are not a, it's not a complete lie. So, look at what it says in verse 13. And set up false witnesses, which said, this man ceases not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. What do you think it said about the holy place? Well, the veil's rent in two. You don't need to take sacrifice there. Jesus Christ has fulfilled it. Fulfilled the use of the temple. How about the law? Not under the law anymore. Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. You see what they're doing? They're taking the actual biblical teaching and they're turning that, they're twisting it just a little bit. Verse 14, so we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, now remember that Jesus of Nazareth, that's not a compliment. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Shall destroy this place and shall change the custom. He didn't say he was going to destroy the place. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise again in three days. And what was he talking about? The temple of his body. He wasn't talking about the temple. But he did prophesy the destruction of the temple. Prophesying it isn't saying to do it. Amen? What are they doing? They're taking the truth and twisting it just a little bit. President Trump giving a speech, making a funny crack. Hey, Russia, if you have her emails, let us have them. It was a joke. He was prosecuted for that. How many of you know it was a joke? 
He rarely says anything serious. What, and how many of you know that the people speaking against him knew that it was a joke? They, what are they? They're just stinking liars. Evil, demonic, satanic people that want to prop up an evil system. Who are these people right here? Evil, demonic, satanic people wanting to prop up an evil system. Are you saying Judaism was an evil system? I'm saying the Judaism they're propping up is evil. And they couldn't resist his words. This is exactly what will happen to us. And that's why our life has to match our message. Let not your good be evil spoken of. We're supposed to be blameless so that if we're persecuted for the name of Christ, that's great. But if we're persecuted because of our behavior, well, we have earned that. And it's vital that we understand that this world is turning against all truth. All of it. And if you stand for the truth, they'll lie about you. It's like Ron DeSantis. He doesn't want just absolute pornography given to eight-year-olds. And they say he's a racist. But then if you actually go to a, to a school council meeting and show the pictures from the books and read it out loud, they'll arrest you. Why? Because they're evil, demonic, satanic people that hate you, that hate the truth. Now, I don't know whether Ron DeSantis is a good guy or not. I don't have any idea. But I do know that I don't want that smut in front of a child. And you watch the way that the other side talks about it. They will never actually say the truth about it. They use euphemisms. Folks, when it comes to theology, we're running into the exact same thing. Here's what happens. Someone will say, well, I'm not a fundamentalist. I don't take a fundamentalist approach to it. What what do they mean by that? Well, fundamentalists started in the, the late 1800s by saying that there are foundational doctrines, and they put out a group of, of, of pamphlets that would talk about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. How many believe in the virgin birth? How many of you believe that Jesus is God, the deity of Christ? How many of you believe Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth? Right? That's what the fundamentals were. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for you? In your place. That's the substitutionary death, the vicarious death of Christ. So these pamphlets were on that. And so someone would say, they, they, someone would be called a fundamentalist because they agreed with those pamphlets on the fundamentals. That's what a fundamentalist was. What's a fundamentalist now? A Muslim jihadist. Right? And they really are fundamentalists because they really believe the Quran. They're not abusing the Quran. Just like we're not, abri- we're not abusing the Bible. We believe the Bible. They believe the Quran. We live out the Bible. They live out the Quran. We're both fundamentalists. Here's what people say when they say, I, I, I don't read the Bible as a fundamentalist. They don't believe the words. They believe the Bible. They just don't believe what it says. Can I say that again? They believe the Bible. They just don't believe what it says. So when we, they ask us a question and we answer with Scripture, it means nothing to them. 
I have debated with Calvinists. And so a Calvinist, they believe, they believe these five points. Total depravity, that is that man, because he's dead in his sins, is incapable of responding to the gospel. They believe in something called unconditional election, that God, based on his own sovereign will, created some people to be saved. And he created others to go to hell. Those he created to be saved can't be lost, and those he created to go to hell can't be saved. Unconditional election. Then, limited atonement. That is that Jesus didn't die for everybody. He only died for those who would be saved. If you don't get saved, Jesus didn't die for you. But the Bible says he tasted death for every man. That's all of us. Amen? And then irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is the teaching that because you're dead in your sins and incapable of responding to the gospel, that and if you're of the elect and God created you to be saved, that he will override your will so that you can be saved. Well, the Bible says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the Bible says, whosoever will, let him taste of the water of life freely. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The Bible is so clear on this. And then the, the last of the TULIP acronym is perseverance of the saints. And if somebody doesn't endure to the end, then they weren't ever really saved. Well, how many of you are glad that God keeps your salvation that you don't? So I've debated with Calvinists many times, and I'd get very frustrated. So when they say limited atonement, and I, I show them, the Bible says in 1 John 2, 2, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And I show them what the Bible says. And it doesn't move them at all. Here, here's the answer. This is always the answer. <laughs> you just don't understand. Well, explain it to me. But explain it to me from the Bible. And Lawrence Vance taught me this from his book, The Other Side of Calvinism. It really helped me because I get very frustrated with it. It's really not that complicated. Jesus died for all. Amen? And he wants everybody to be saved. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's what God's will is. And I would show from the Bible, and it wouldn't persuade them. You know why? For the Calvinist, their authority is not the Bible. Their authority is their Calvinism. And they have to twist the scriptures to fit their system. Let me be very clear. I'm glad that all the Calvinists will be in heaven with us. They're saved people. They're brothers and sisters in Christ. R.C. Sproul was asked one time. He calls us Arminians. We're not, but that's what he calls us. Somebody asked him a question. um, Are Arminians saved? And he said, yes, but barely. Well, thanks. They call us semi-Pelagians. Pelagius believed in a work salvation. And so if you believe that faith precedes salvation, they call that a work. And so they call you a semi-Pelagian. And my technical answer for that, whenever anyone calls me a semi-Pelagian, is your mom's a semi-Pelagian. Because that's the, that's the level of argumentation there. Just so you know, there's no such thing as a semi-Pelagian. You either believe in faith or you believe in works. You can't believe halfway. Right? As soon as you move off of faith, you're into works. You can't be partway. There's no such thing as a semi-Pelagian. So don't call me that. And what happens, just like with Stephen, when you show these people from the Scriptures 
clearly what the Bible says in context. They hate you. So what should we do? Boy, it worked out well for Stephen, didn't it? Yeah, he went to heaven. He had the ultimate deliverance. He had the ultimate victory. And God wrote it down in the scriptures so we can know it forever. So there's people. There's Stephen. There's the council. There's the the Alexandrians and the the Cyrenians and these people from that synagogue. There's the people. What's the problem? The problem is he's preaching faith in Jesus Christ. And religious people hate that. And so what you're going to experience this Christmas season, as you preach faith in Jesus Christ to religious people, they will hate it. It's okay. Some of them will believe. Isn't that good? How many of you would say, you know what, I really was an enemy of the gospel at one point. I didn't want to hear it. I was an enemy of the gospel. Would you raise your hands? Hold them up high. Look at this. Look at this. How many of you are glad somebody didn't give up on you? Amen? So understand that there will be people who reject and resist and who respond in rage to all of it, even if you're full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost, full of power. And yet, there'll be some who believe. And I know, the Bible doesn't really record the converts of Stephen. But I think God used Stephen to influence the Apostle Paul. Did Paul have any converts? Everybody raise your hand. (laughs) Amen. Isn't that good? This is such an amazing book of the Bible. And Stephen is such an incredible character. So let's put some handles on this to take home. Number one, are you full of faith? Are you in a situation right now where you really can't see the victory? You really can't see the end. Well, that's what faith is. It's the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. See, why do I believe God created the world? Because I have faith. Right? The only person here old enough, Harry, was probably there. But the rest of us were not there when the world was created. (laughs) Love you, Harry. How many of you were not there when the world was created? Now, if you're a Mormon, you might have been. Different conversation. So how do we know it happened? By faith. You know what's fun? Science is catching up with our faith. You don't have to have faith to believe that it all started. Because according to physics, there is not one Darwinian evolutionist left in higher end research. None of them. The only place you can find a Darwinian evolutionist is at your high school. At your college. The people who are actually doing the work, they don't believe in that anymore. Because it can't be true. It can't logically be true. You know what's fun? Logic caught up with the Bible. They should have just taken it by faith. Why do I believe that God has preserved his word? Why do I believe that I actually can hold God's words in my hand? By faith. And yet, that's where I started. And yet, after all these years of studying it, boy, there's lots of good reasons to believe it. But we believe it because God said it. Amen? Well, that's circular reasoning. I was talking with a girl in Connecticut years ago who was walking away from the faith. 
And well, why do you believe the Bible's true? Well, because the Bible says it's true. That's circular reasoning. I said, but what if it's true? Doesn't matter if it's circular, if it's true. Amen. Are you full of faith? Would you like to be full of power? Man, I want to do miracles. God's never promised me that I would be full of miracles. But I can have all of the Holy Spirit power that the Holy Spirit wants to give me. And I have all the Holy Spirit that he ever promised because he's actually living in me. How amazing is that? Can we finish with this? Look at this last verse of chapter 6. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw as it had been the face of an angel. The Bible says that we're to be steadfastly looking at Jesus. They were steadfastly looking at him. And what did God do? God caused his face to shine just like Moses had. So his whole sermon is about Moses. And God gave the men the same evidence that he had given Israel when he showed Moses. Look at what it says. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. A couple of things there. Number one, he wasn't angry. How about that? He was calm. Number two, it really did glow. It really did shine. And it did nothing for his hearers. See, we want miracles. We want to be able to demonstrate God did that. They still rejected it. So what are we to do? Just preach the truth in the right spirit with the right material, full of wisdom. That's who we are to be. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for Stephen, this bridge between Peter and Paul.